Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Kevin here. Today we're going to close out Season 2 of the podcast with the last episode of 2019. I want to thank everyone who's been listening and who has helped make this such a successful year for the podcast. With this being the last episode of the year, I stepped aside and let the show's Patreon patrons decide who we should invite to the podcast, and they did not disappoint. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author and journalist Julia Flynn Seiler. An alumni of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, Julia has two decades worth of experience reporting the news from dozens of countries across North America and Europe. Her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, and the New York Times, and she has been a guest commentator on NPR, CBS, and the BBC. Julia kindly joins me from the West Coast via Skype to discuss her newest book, The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown. In our time together, Julia and I discuss the reasons for the mass migration of Chinese immigrants to California in the 1800s, the slave trade that arose between China and San Francisco's Chinatown long after slavery was officially abolished in the United States, and the women who ran the Occidental Mission Home that rescued and housed thousands of former slave girls who had been brought to the United States for forced prostitution and domestic servitude. As always, if you've enjoyed today's episode and you feel like you've learned something, head on over to wherever you listen to your podcast and please leave the show a five-star review. It'd be much appreciated. Now let's dive into today's topic. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hi, Julia. Welcome to the program. Delighted to be here, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you are one of our patrons' pick uh, episodes, which means that patrons of the show uh, took a poll and decided that they wanted to invite you to come on the show. So there's some uh, anticipated interest in your book, The White Devil's Daughter. Well, I'm thrilled. Thank you, patrons. <laughs> so I, I guess let's start with um, you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you discovered this topic? Sure. So I started life uh, as a journalist, at least I should say. I started my working career as a journalist, and uh, I worked in, for national magazines and newspapers in Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, Prague, London, and back in San Francisco. So I had a, a long career uh, writing for publications such as the Wall Street Journal and Business Week magazine. Um, and, in fact, it was a Wall Street Journal story that led me to my very first book, which was The House of Mondavi, and that was published in 2007. It was about four generations of a Napa Valley wine family. Uh, and I absolutely loved writing that book and wanted to keep on going with uh, writing narrative history, which I found so compelling, and I'd been a, a reader of it for many, many years, uh, since high school, really. Um, and uh, the the way that I came to this book was kind of funny, in a way. My second book had been uh, a book about the overthrow of the last queen of Hawaii called Lost Kingdom, 
and uh, had quite a focus on uh, the sugar barons in the late 19th, early 20th century uh, who were so involved with uh, her overthrow. And those many of the, the ancestors of the sugar barons were Christian missionaries who had first come to Hawaii in the early 19th century. Um, and my, my third book, I was once again looking in general at uh, the history of uh, the West Coast and uh, the Pacific region. And I was re- reading widely on San Francisco history, and I came across an account of a woman named Donald Dina Cameron, very old-fashioned name. Uh, and she uh, wrote this searing, very vivid account of the 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 hours and days after the earthquake of April 18, 1906, which struck San Francisco. And at that point, she was responsible for a household of around 60 girls, women, even a few babies. And she uh, managed to get that very large group to safety um, during that time. And her account was so vivid, it was almost as if I could smell the smoke in the air from the firestorms that erupted after the earthquake. And, you know, I could feel the chaos of the city. And uh, as a as a as a local person, as somebody who grew up in the Bay Area, I, I wanted to know more about her, and I wanted to know more about that home, which is still standing today in San Francisco. So you can identify with a lot of the locations and places that she's talking about. Absolutely, I must have walked past uh, the home that was set up um, many, many times um, without really realizing what it was. And after I read that first-person account by Donaldina Cameron, uh, I, I searched around a little more for information about her. And one of the first things that came up was that this house, which is uh, still located to this day at 920 Sacramento Street, San Francisco, considered one of the most haunted houses in San Francisco. Uh, And having now visited it many, many times and explored its kind of dark basements, I really think there's some truth to that. I think it is haunted. Uh, I'm sure, yeah, that building, um, if, you know, walls could talk, that type of thing, there there is a lot of uh, emotional hardship that, that those walls would have witnessed. Yes, that's a really good way of putting it. And um, and the story itself, the long story of the establishment of the rescue home and the seven decades or so in which it operated from the 1870s to the 1930s is a startling, a very heart-wrenching story of grit and survival um, in which, you know, Thousands of women pass through its doors uh, in search of freedom, in search of a better life. And these these were women who had been trafficked, for the most part, from China, sold into sometimes sexual slavery, sometimes uh, sent into situations where they were household servants, um, and had very few options for uh, changing their lives other than seeking out this home. Um, so it's it it in in terms of a story that uh, seems to have relevance today, um, this is one that really touched me and um, 
you know, I started it well before the Me Too movement uh, erupted, but it certainly uh, resonates with, with that as well. So before we get started with this um, heartbreaking um, uh, history of, of the mission work in San Francisco, uh, let's um, establish a little bit of the setting. How did uh, the Chinese uh, first arrive in California, and what prompted such a huge demand for a sex industry? Mm-hmm. Well, many there was a, a a vast migration of Chinese men to the West Coast uh, in the 19th century because there were great job opportunities awaiting them here uh, in building the railroads, laying the tracks, digging the tunnels, uh, the gold rush. Um, and many of those Chinese men who made that choice to come to the United States uh, left their families behind, uh, and they fully intended to return to China once the work was, was done. Um, and that resulted in uh, fairly large um, communities of of that were primarily men um, at the time. Uh, for example, in the 1870s, there were census takers who came to San, San Francisco's Chinatown, which was then a roughly eight-block area in the center of the city, and it was the most concentrated or highly populated area of the city. Um, there were roughly 12,000 people living there, and by far the majority of those people were men, which led some commentators to call it a bachelor society. And at the same time, those census takers would ask or try to ascertain the, the occupations of the people who were living in Chinatown, living across the city at that point. And the vast majority of women, the few women who were in Chinatown then, were prostitutes. Now, some of those perhaps had chosen the profession, but uh, I think scholars and others believe that the vast majority were pressed into or forced into prostitution at that time. Um, and, you know, one out of uh, roughly 70, 71, 72 percent of the women in the 1870s were in Chinatown were, were working as prostitutes. And so there was a huge demand for sex from both Chinese men who were starved of female attention, uh, as well as white men who would come to Chinatown looking for sex. Um, and Chinatown was adjacent to San Francisco's vice district at that point, which was known as the Barbary Coast. So they kind of um, merged into each other. And there were a huge number of brothels. And the conditions in those brothels for the women and the girls who worked there were uh, horrific. Um, and the average life expectancy of a girl or woman working in a brothel in the 19th century, mid-19th century, was something like four years. Many of them died of sexual abuse or uh, died of uh, disease. And um, the, the worst conditions were those in which girls or women were forced to work in what were then called cribs. And these were very small spaces, often divided by sheets, in which a girl or a young woman would service 12, 15 men a night. Um, it was a brutal, brutal existence. 
Yeah, the, the, the way you describe it in the book, I mean, it's not that dissimilar from a prison, really. Yes, that's, that is essentially true. And, uh, of course, most of the young women trafficked to San Francisco at the time were coming from the Canton area, the Guangdong Peninsula, and spoke Cantonese. They did not speak English, so they were isolated linguistically. Um, and likewise, the the authorities who they might have reached out to for help, uh, such as the police or immigration authorities, um, oftentimes those people had a hand in uh, the brothels or were profiting in some manner from the brothels and or from the criminal gangs that were trafficking women. Um, so there were very few ways for women who were trapped in those brothels to escape. Um, and I say women, but what I really mean is that many, many of the, uh, the, the females who were forced into prostitution during that time or who were being held as sex slaves were very, very young. Uh, they were 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a brutal, brutal life for them. Now, in, in history, um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, transatlantic slave trade in the, mm -hmm. um, you know, 18th and 19th uh, centuries, um, but you write about a trans-Pacific slave trade. How did the Chinese criminal organizations uh, oversee that and, and control that trade? Uh, and, and it's worth pointing out, this is, this is after the United States abolished both the slave trade and slavery in, in the United States. Yes, that's that's exactly right. So that's after the Thirteenth Amendment, and before that, the abolishing of the of the trade. Um, the, there was a very um, established pattern of how it was done that continued into the twentieth century. There were procurers uh, in the Chinese countryside, in the port towns, and um, as you'll recall. During that period of Chinese history, there was a huge amount of civil unrest and great degree of poverty. And culturally, uh, Chinese patriarchs um, during that period of time had the right to make decisions concerning their families and particularly their daughters. And so um, a Chinese patriarch could choose to sell a daughter to help the family at that point in time. Um, and that is often what would happen. Uh, and the daughters would be sold to the procurer. The procurer would arrange for transport on the steamers that made their way between, for example, Hong Kong and San Francisco, which was then the largest port uh, on the West Coast. And, and then they would arrive. Uh, often the, the young women would be um, given... Uh, coaching papers uh, that would help them pass as the daughters of merchants, because uh, particularly after the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, the only Chinese women who were permitted into, oh, and I should mention the Page Act, which was in the 1870s, the only Chinese women permitted legal entry into the United States were the daughters or wives of merchants or other uh, uh, kind of higher status um, uh, immigrants, such as scholars uh, or uh, ambassadors. 
Um, and so these coaching papers would help the girls pass in that way as the daughters of merchants. Um, and some were smuggled in that way. Others were smuggled in in even more um, kind of creative ways. Uh, for example, one of the leading traffickers in San Francisco in the late 19th century was a man who was given the nickname Little Pete. And Little Pete seemed to have a specialty in uh, arranging uh, young women and girls to come supposedly to the United States to perform in the various international fairs that were taking place during that period of time. For example, uh, the Panama, you know, the different expositions, international expositions. Well, mm -hmm. those girls would be allowed in as so-called performers and then within weeks would end up in the brothels in San Francisco instead. Um, so there were a variety of ways of trafficking girls and women into the United States despite the immigration restrictions aimed at limiting the number of Chinese girls and women's coming. Um, but it, what I should also point out is that this trade was uh, very much controlled by uh, criminal organizations, uh, criminal tongs at the time. Uh, Little Pete was a, a prominent tong leader, um, and uh, they had connections both in China and in uh, San Francisco and the West Coast. And um, this method of operation continued for uh, many years, uh, and it was actually helped after the 1906 earthquake when so many records, immigration records, were destroyed. Uh, and therefore, that, that gave rise to the, um, to the appearance or the, the opportunity to create so-called paper sons and paper daughters, where people would claim to be merchants' sons and daughters, uh, but, of course, the paperwork had been burnt up, as everybody understood. So there was a period of time when a number of people came into the country that way. Uh, and can you elaborate a little bit more on, uh, you, you mentioned the Chinese Exclusion Act and the mm -hmm. uh, the Page Act. Can you elaborate a little bit more on uh, the anti-Chinese sentiment in the United States at the time that, that prompted these uh, pieces of legislation? Yes. Well, there uh, was a great deal of concern in, in the latter half of the 19th century that the Chinese immigrants in the United States were stealing or taking jobs from white citizens of the country. Uh, and there was a great deal of um, clamoring, riots, uh, legislative action to try to block the Chinese from uh, immigrating to the United States further uh, and thus uh, competing for jobs. And, of course, that, that, that template, that, um, that uh, movement uh, became more acute and more uh, visible during periods of economic stress, such as the early 1880s, um, when much of the country was uh, having... Um, experiencing a great economic uh, down, downturn. And that led to the, China, the first Chinese uh, Exclusion Act in 1882, which was then extended pretty much continuously until the 1940s under various guises, including the Gary Act at one point. And it had different names, but um, it lasted for a very long time. Now, 
even before the Chinese Exclusion Act, there was the Page Act in the 1870s. That was very specifically intended to keep out uh, Asian women who were coming to the United States as prostitutes. Um, so the restrictions against Asian women were uh, tighter and were in place before the Chinese Exclusion Act was, was passed. All right, so legislators early on were aware of and, and recognized that this was an issue. Yes, yes, or saw it as an issue, and certainly uh, that was um, that drumbeat was made even more persistent with the help of newspapers and uh, with the aid of populist um, leaders such as uh, Dennis Kearney in San Francisco, who led what was known as the Sandlot Riots, uh, which where people uh, came to the Civic Center in San Francisco and uh, were carrying signs such as the Chinese must go and then marched through the streets of the city and broke the windows of Chinese businesses and threw stones at Chinese people. And um, uh, so he's probably the most famous anti-Chinese agitator uh, during that period of time. All and right. I should also say, I should also say, Kevin, that uh, the the overall backdrop was a huge amount of violence towards the Chinese on the West Coast in the 1870s and 1880s. And just two years before the founding of the rescue home that I write about in The White Devil's Daughters, uh, there was a lynching of 18 Chinese men in Los Angeles. And scholars are now uncovering uh, even more widespread violence uh, that really we hadn't really been aware of um, until recently. Um, all right, well, y you just um, mentioned the mission home. Uh, let's get into the meat of your book. Um, how was the Occidental Mission Home uh, formed, and, and what kind of controversy did that stir up uh, among Methodists and Presbyterians? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, the founding of the home really began in 1873 in March when a, a group of women uh, came to a church near San Francisco's Union Square to hear uh, a, a visiting missionary speak, a woman named Emily Gulick, and she described the condition of women in China that she had seen during her work. Um, after she ended speaking, most of the women disappeared, but a few stayed behind, and they got to talking. And initially they thought, well, let's try to help women in China. And then they realized, well, maybe we should look a little closer to home, because the condition of Asian women in San Francisco is deplorable. Uh, they, there were newspaper accounts during that time of, of, of Chinese, uh, Chinese girls and women being left on the streets to die and their bodies uh, being found there. Um, and so they said, let's, let's try to figure out some way to reach out to these vulnerable girls and women. Um, and they were doing this out of their Christian faith. And they finally came around to the idea that what they should do was to start a safe house uh, for vulnerable girls and women. Uh, in Chinatown. And now they were not the first people to think of that because the Methodists had actually started a very modest version of that as well, also in Chinatown about a year earlier. 
But this group of women had a few more resources. They had the backing of some society patrons, such as um, such as uh, Phoebe Apperson Hearst, the mother of uh, the famous press baron, and also the wife of uh, the Senator George Hearst. Um, and so they had some they had some uh, financial backing, and they were eventually able to buy a very substantial home right in the shadow of Knob Hill, which was in the most exclusive neighborhood of San Francisco. And this home uh, was, uh, was at 920 Sacramento Street, uh, right below what would become the Fairmont Hotel. The Fairmont Hotel is still standing there, and right below what is now the University Club. Um, so a very, very fancy part of the city, but leading right down into what was then the ghetto of Chinatown. And so they bought this house, and, uh, well, they actually at first started with an apartment um, on Sacramento Street, and then they came to buy, buy the house, a uh, very large home, and opened doors to vulnerable girls uh, starting in 1874. Uh, and the, the, the early days were very rocky. They had a lot of trouble kind of managing it. And, of course, one of the obstacles they faced was that they were reaching out to women who had been deeply traumatized uh, and who spoke Chinese. And for the most part, the, these do-gooding Presbyterian women didn't speak Chinese and had very little understanding of Chinese culture. And so they really needed to rethink uh, their approach. And they eventually managed to recruit a woman who had been born in China named Margaret Culbertson, a Christian missionary who was who had the right set of skills to manage a a home that was getting larger and larger over every year and housing more and more women um, and they they overcame their kind of rocky rocky period and uh, started to really have an impact in the city um, so that those were the early days of the home um, and uh, the accounts that I found were really, there were some very humorous moments and some very poignant moments as well. Uh, one of the things I, I learned was that the, the people who kept records every year, there was a, a women's group that uh, kept annual reports of their charitable project. And they kept very detailed reports. Uh, and so it was, for a historian like me, it was a very... Uh, wonderful find to hear the accounts and hear these, um, you know, have a, have a continuous record of those 70 years that the home operated as a safe house. So what did their uh, mission look like? They, they would go in and, and rescue these girls from slavery. What, what did that process look like? Sure. So in the early days, the process generally was that a vulnerable girl or woman would be identified, often by a police officer or an immigration officer. And the, these officers would realize that they could take them to one of the homes then operating in Chinatown, run by missionaries. Um, and so they would sometimes bring them there. And this was before the days of very developed social services. So there, was, there were very few other options of places to take 
uh, women who'd been traumatized uh, through the experience of sex slavery. Um, now, as time progressed, however, the women who ran the home started executing what they called rescue missions themselves. And, of course, rescue missions is a, is a term that we would not use in the 21st century because it seems to strip agency in a way from the survivors of, uh, of trafficking. Um, but the way that um, they would describe these so-called missions was that they would uh, perhaps get a note at the home that a girl was in distress. And so they would make their way to the address um, possibly accompanied by a police officer. And uh, generally, the white staffer at the home would be accompanied by a Chinese aide. Often, one of the, one of the women uh, who had uh, herself found her way to the home and uh, decided to help work alongside the white staffers as translators and as kind of the first um, person that a trafficking survivor would meet or would talk to. So if you can picture what this might look like, you'd have a white superintendent of the home or a white staffer, you'd have the Chinese aide and translator, and you might have a policeman or an immigration officer. And they would go to a brothel, let's say. And uh, the brothels during that period of time had gotten gotten smart to the idea that these missionaries were uh, coming, in some cases, to help uh, what they considered their human property. And so they would bar their doors. They would even post guards in front of the doors to alert them to when uh, groups such, unwanted groups such as that might approach them. Um, and so in some cases, these groups led by the staffers of the home might end up pushing into a door or might end up climbing up a ladder to, to somehow reach the second floor um, on their own. So there was a little bit of breaking and entering. It's not <laughs> clear it was entirely legal what they were doing. Um, and I think arguably probably was not always legal. Uh, that said, they would get the girl uh, or young woman, ask her if she wanted to come, and if she did, they would take her back to the home. And the home itself, I should mention, Kevin, was also very guarded during that time. Um, there was always a doorkeeper. The, the windows were barred. The back entrance was locked. Um, and the, the home itself, as they began staging, as it began, the staffers there began staging these rescues, became uh, the, itself a subject of violence. And there were periods where Tong members presumably placed dynamite sticks around the home, threatened the home, sent notes to staffers, threatening notes to staffers. Um, so there was a lot of violence in Chinatown during that, that period of time, and some of it was aimed at the mission home. These were criminal gang members involved in trafficking who were, yes, threatening violence to... Uh, groups that were disrupting their business. They're very, very lucrative business. And they have a lot of money um, invested uh, in what they oh, perceived as their property. Absolutely. It was a hugely profitable business for them. Um, let's say they could buy a girl or a young woman in China for three, uh, the equivalent of 300 U.S. dollars. 
they could easily sell her for five times that much once they got to San Francisco. And the brothel owners themselves could make a great deal of money off of her. Um, so, yes, it was a very, very profitable business during that time. So what can you tell us about uh, Donaldina Dolly Cameron and her leadership of the Mission Home? Sure. So Margaret Culbertson, uh, who I mentioned before, the, the missionary who had been born in China, who was a very uh, good administrator, who was very level-headed, who kind of brought the home to um, some sense, or gave it some meant much sense of order. She had run the home for almost two decades by the time Donaldina came uh, in 1895. And Donaldina herself was a very, very interesting character. She was auburn-haired. She came from a Scottish uh, family that had been involved in sheep ranching for many, many years. Her father had come to California uh, ultimately to run Lucky Baldwin's uh, sheep ranch in Southern California, a ranch called La Puente. And um, she reached her her mid-20s, and she had been engaged to be married, which was the traditional path for kind of a middle, middle-class woman such as herself. But for some reason, that engagement broke off. We don't know exactly why. And a friend reached out to her after that broken engagement and said, Dolly, uh, there, is a, there is an opportunity for you to do good work, and that is to come to San Francisco and teach sewing to the girls who are living in this home. And Dolly Cameron arrived, and there's a photograph of her at that, around that time in the mid-1890s in which she's wearing delicate netting over her face and, and these tidy white gloves and this very, you know, probably her very best clothing that she could be photographed in. Uh, and she gets to the home uh, in April of 1895, and that was the time, right around then was the time when the dynamite sticks had been placed around the home, with an event that made the newspapers. And she very quickly realized that she was in for much more of a challenge than just teaching girls how to, you know, tidily st- make tidy stitches in clothing and and other types of things. And so she rolled up her sleeves and got to work very quickly. Um, And she was very involved in what I described earlier as the rescue work. Um, And in fact, she became involved much much more quickly than she she herself had ever anticipated she would because Margaret Culbertson, who had hired her and who had guided her in the the earliest months, um, had been struggling with very, very serious health problems. And by 1898, Margaret Culbertson very suddenly died. And uh, Dolly Cameron uh, really needed to step up and become the superintendent, the head of the home. And so from a fairly young age, she took on the responsibility of running a large group home up to 50 or 60 girls and women at any one time, um, and making sure that they were fed, housed, kept safe. And, you know, one of the things she ended up doing for from the very beginning and uh, through the years she was there was uh, continual court cases because she would represent the girls and the women in court hearings. Um, and uh, she was a, a 
a fascinating character. I loved uh, writing about her. Um, and uh, she had a lot of, of courage, I think. And that was one of the things that came through so strikingly in her description of what happened in the 1906 earthquake and leading those girls and women through the burning city to safety. In, in what is a, a very heartbreaking uh, story of, of human tragedy, she really is an inspirational figure that shines through the book. I agree. I agree. She is inspirational. And she, she's a very human character, too. Uh, one of the parts of her story um, that is so touching is that after Margaret Culbertson died, she essentially had a nervous breakdown um, and had to take a little bit of time off because she was so heartbroken by the death of her mentor. And also, I can only imagine overwhelmed um, by what that meant, what the loss of Margaret Culbertson meant um, at the home at that point. But she came back, she took a rest, she came back, and came back even in greater strength. Um, And, you know, she certainly lived through, I mean, she lived at the home for more than 40 years. And just to kind of describe the hardship conditions that she lived in, she lived in this tiny little room um, with a closet that was so small it couldn't fit more than two shoes. Uh, she lived in a, a group home with um, uh, girls and women who were so deeply traumatized and and often were sick when they arrived. And so there would be, you know, all kinds of uh, diseases and um, flus and other things that would sweep through the home periodically. And uh, so in, a, in addition to all of her other responsibilities, she was overseeing Uh, the health of of these girls. And at that point, there wasn't kind of the understanding of trauma that we have today. There weren't psychological services to support survivors. And so that was something intuitively that the staffers tried tried to handle on their own. And they did that through the prism of Christian faith, because one of their goals was to try to convert the girls and women who took refuge there to Christianity. And it's not clear to me how many people they actually did convert to Christianity. It, it appears from the, the many, many case files and annual reports and other materials that I poured through that their record was actually fairly slender in terms of converting uh, girls and women to Christianity. Um, But that said, the the home did operate kind of as a de facto marriage bureau for many, uh, many girls and women. And there's kind of this amazing diaspora of Chinese-American families whose grandmothers or great-grandmothers took refuge in the home, and then there was a marriage arranged or a marriage that somehow came out of the home, and then they would move to other cities and other places across the United States. So um, certainly this home had a, a very big impact on, on, uh, uh, on a number of thousands, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. 
Um, so what was life like for the girls living in the home? And um, can you share any uh, success stories of, you mentioned, you know, the thousands that went through uh, and came out on the other side to a better life. Can you share any uh, specific stories of that? Sure, I'd be happy to, Kevin. Um, let's start with what the life of the girls in the home was like. Um, it was a very regimented life. Uh, it was a life where everyone would get up at 7 a.m. Um, there might be prayers at first thing in the morning, and then there were chores. And the girls and the Chinese staffers uh, ran the household for the most part. Um, they would oversee uh, the purchasing of food or purchasing of groceries, the cooking of the food, the laundry, all of the daily tasks that were involved in running a very large group home. Um, they would go to escorted, they would leave the home and go to uh, the local Chinese Presbyterian church, which was about a block and a half away, um, at least on Sundays, maybe even more than once a week. Um, but they would always go in a group because there was fear that the traffickers would try to snatch back uh, the girls and women when they were on the street and available. Um, and so there was always that overlying uh, worry uh, of the safety of the girls and women. And in fact, that sometimes happened. There were instances where traffickers would come to the home, um, sometimes accompanied by lawyers, and say, we demand this young lady back. Um, you have no right to keep her here. And so that led to these, these court cases that seem to be endless over the years. Um, and there are, some, uh, there are some sad stories, and there are some uplifting and really amazing stories of transformation. Um, there's the story of a uh, young... Well, let's start with the, the, the woman who became kind of a key aide at the home and Dolly Cameron's ultimate closest friend. Um, this was a young girl named Tian Wu Fu Wu. And she had arrived actually 15 months before Dolly uh, got to the home. She arrived in uh, 1894. And her father, Tian's father, had uh, in China had sold her to a procurer to pay his gambling debts. And so Tian, we don't know exactly what age uh, she was at the time, but she was perhaps six or seven years old, uh, was put on to a steamer uh, from Hong Kong to San Francisco. And she was accompanied by, uh, by somebody who realized she had just been sold. And Tian ended up in a brothel, working in a brothel as a servant at a very young age. And um, this is in San Francisco's Chinatown. And then from the brothel, she was sold to two women. And these two women um, badly mistreated her, so much so that they uh, used to burn her with hot iron tongs. And her, her, her terrible plight came to the um, attention of authorities. And uh, a policeman finally... Um, came to check up on this little girl who was perhaps eight years old at the time um, and found uh, her in such a state that they decided to bring her to the home at 920 Sacramento Street. And again, as I mentioned, this is in 1894. And I know this because Tian is one of the few people 
um, who came through the home who left very extensive first-person accounts of her experience. So I, I'm relaying this to you in, in, from her own words of what happened. And she relays how she was carried in the arms of a burly policeman to 920 Sacramento Street. And she was in tears because she feared where she would end up next. Could it be even worse than where she had come from? Anyway, she ends up at the home, and there are a number of other little girls there, as, as well as young women. And she quickly shows herself to be an extremely bright um, young woman, um, so much so that she uh, finds a sponsor. Um, this is a, a Presbyterian churchman. He actually lives in Philadelphia, but he meets her at some point in San Francisco and is really um, struck by this little girl and by her 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 energy and her intelligence, and he decides to uh, support her financially. And so she ends up going to a a very prestigious boarding school uh, in the Philadelphia area. And from there, she goes to a, uh, a, a Bible college in Toronto. So she attains a level of higher education. Now, she's essentially, by this time, uh, a... Uh, unusually well-educated Chinese-American woman. She speaks good English, and one of the first things she decides she wants to try to do is to find her family in China, uh, particularly her grandmother and her mother. And uh, she goes back to China, and she realizes she can't find them. There's been so much civil civil uh, war and turmoil um, that she cannot locate them. So she then says, well, you know, the closest thing I have to a family is the people who raised me at um, 920 Sacramento Street. So she goes back to the home and takes on a job uh, as a staffer there. And she translates. She runs the household. She runs the household when um, when the other, uh, other staffers are not, the white staffers are not available. Um, and she testifies in court and does does a lot of uh, very high-level work over the years. Um, and she starts to work very closely with Dolly Cameron, particularly after Dolly is named the superintendent. And, um, and one of the things to me that is so touching about Tin's story is that she really devoted her life to fighting for vulnerable girls and women like herself. Um, and uh, not only that, um, she uh, devoted herself to to Dolly Cameron, who had reached out to her when when she was still a young girl and had been her friend during that time. Um, and I did a lot of traveling for this book, and you know, visited uh, archives at Yale and at Berkeley and at Stanford, and even the Highland uh, Highland. Um, archives in uh, Scotland to track down Dolly's family. But one of the places I went that was most touching to me was Evergreen Cemetery in East Los Angeles. And I went to the Cameron family plot. Um, and Evergreen Cemetery, you have to remember, was one of the oldest cemeteries, is one of the oldest cemeteries in Los Angeles, and for many, many years did not permit Chinese people to be buried there. But Sure enough, there's Tian Fu Wu, and she is in the same plot as Dolly Cameron. Um, and the two women spent their retirement years together and really became each other's closest friends. And so I, I find her story to be a, a very remarkable story. Absolutely. 
Um, and you and you you include some wonderful photographs throughout the book of of the two of them as well. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Yeah, the photographic research for this book was such a pleasure, and um, I was astounded by how many incredible photographs there are in the Library of Congress at Stanford, at Berkeley, other places that really brought this period of time uh, to life. Um, so the, the last thing I wanted to ask you um, today, Julia, is in the five years you spent researching this book, um, did you gain any insights into the ongoing problem of human trafficking that still exists today? Well, I, I, I think I'm not an expert in contemporary human trafficking by any means. Um, However, uh, several anti-trafficking groups and organizations have reached out to me since the book has come out because in some ways The White Devil's Daughters is a story of these pioneering anti-trafficking activists who, you know, with very little money, with few resources, managed to testify in front of legislators, managed to help pass the first piece of anti-trafficking legislation in the state of California and who uh, achieved a tremendous amount in terms of raising the issue of what was in the 19th century called the slave girl traffic, but we today would call human trafficking, um, to you know a much larger larger audience than otherwise would have you know been aware of the issue. Um, so it's really been striking to me how people fighting this crime now are looking to this um, group of people in history as an example of how long this effort um, has been going on to fight human trafficking. Um, and I, I would say that I've been invited to a few anti-trafficking conferences to speak, and uh, I've also, of course, been listening to what experts are saying about contemporary human trafficking. And one of the things that strikes me is how similar the basic business model is um, between the 19th, early 20th centuries and, and what it is today. Um, the difference, of course, is the digital world and how that makes traffic, human trafficking so much easier in some senses and changes, changes certain elements of it. But the, the basic conditions of um, desperate poverty, uh, of uh, trickery in which young women and girls think they're taking, for example, a waitressing job in San Francisco, and in fact they are uh, trapped in a, a brothel and forced into prostitution. That same dynamic is happening today. It really hasn't changed that much. Well, Julia, uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. This has been a, a, a wonderful, thoughtful conversation. Um, as, as you mentioned, this is a narrative history, and there is a lot more detail uh, in the book than what we, we were able to cover today. So if someone wanted to learn more and pick up a copy of the book or find out more about you, uh, what are some places they can go? Sure. Thanks, Kevin, for asking. Um, so uh, my, please visit my website, www.juliaflynnseiler.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, uh, jsilerauthor at uh, well, twitter.com or whatever. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn. 
Uh, and the book, I, you know, I'd urge people to look for The White Devil's Daughters in independent bookstores, your local bookstore. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on the program today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. It was really great to talk to you. Well, thank you for listening to this last episode of 2019, and thank you again to my guest, Julia Flynn Seiler, for coming on the program. If you are interested in picking up a copy of her book, you can find a link down in the description of your podcast app. The White Devil's Daughters is a great read, and I definitely recommend it. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this was a patron's pick. What this means is that patrons of the show through Patreon get to decide four times a year who is going to come on the program. The White Devil's Daughters is the book that patrons picked for December, but looking ahead to 2020, we have a new poll up for who we should invite to come on the program for the March patrons pick episode. And if you are interested in weighing in on who we should invite to come on the podcast, the candidates are The Queens of Animation, The Untold Story of the Women Who Transformed the World of Disney and Made Cinematic History by Natalia Holt, George Marshall, Defender of the Republic by David Roll, or How to Be a Dictator, The Cult of Personality in the 20th Century by Frank Decoter. If you would like to vote for one of these candidates, consider becoming a Patreon patron at www.patreon.com slash cmtuhistory. Not only do you get to participate in patrons pick episodes, but you also get regular updates from me on what authors are booked to come on the show in the future. You get the ability to submit a question to authors that we can answer on the show. And there's also some bonus CMTU swag in there as well. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is the last episode of Season 2 of the podcast. Thank you so much for sticking with me and listening. I hope that you have enjoyed uh, some great conversations with some great historians and authors. I will see you guys back here in 2020. The next episode will air in early January. And after that, I will figure it out. I have several authors lined up. Uh, All of their new releases release in February, so I have to figure out how to make that work. Regardless, 2020 is going to be great. In the time until we see each other again, I wish you all the best in this holiday season. Spend some time with family. Spend some time with friends. I hope you all have a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year's. Take care.